The doxology, doxa, the Greek word, meaning glory. Ology, the word. So we speak the word of glory back to God today. He deserves it. We are here to worship him. Well, so we've been studying the Beatitudes. Oh, blessed are you. Happy is the one who. You are blessed when. I mean, amen, happy and blessed. Man, those are great words. I gotta tell you, those are the kinds of words you want to think about when you are preaching the Bible, when you're inviting people to find life in Christ, the kinds of words we find over and over again in this wonderful passage we call the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter five. Those words which we read together earlier today as Louise led us. So I just have one question. So how is it that Pastor Eddie gets stuck with the last one with the exciting opening, you're blessed when you're persecuted. You're blessed when you suffer. Frankly, I'm feeling a little persecuted. I'm thinking Pastor David and Pastor Paul had got together, had a preaching team meeting while I was on mission trip in Brazil, and they assigned me this message, and that's true. But it's, but it's not true that I feel persecuted. I'm just joking about that, of course. I don't feel persecuted at all. As a matter of fact, you can't read this passage, much less preach it, without knowing it's a great honor it's a privilege. And in all truth, I feel rather unqualified to preach this message, not because I didn't study, not because I haven't prepared as a pastor, but the truth is that in spite of a lot of whining when we get tired, complaining in Christian America that we've lost our cultural dominance, our religious hegemony, the fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is that almost none of us know anything about truly being persecuted for our faith because of the gospel, for the sake of righteousness. I was doing a little count this weekend. I tried to figure out exactly. I could be off by one or two, but I think at this point in my life, I've been in 47 of the 50 states. I've been in 23 foreign countries, a number of which are not predominantly Christian, much less evangelical Protestant. And I can tell you that I've always tried to be a savvy traveler, a smart Christian. Uh, I've been careful about what you say, when and where, and the settings you're in. But the truth is I cannot say that I've genuinely suffered because of my faith even in those places. And I can't even approach this topic about suffering for the sake of the gospel and being blessed for our suffering without being reminded of a verse, a memory verse from my high school days. We were, we were made to memorize or led to memorize as part of a youth discipleship group at the time, a small group of youth. Philippians 3.10, oh, that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed, being made like him. That is 
an amazing passage, being conformed unto his death, the passage says. Not really the part most of us are eager to emphasize, but what Paul is saying in that passage in Philippians 3.10 is, this is what all of life is about. It's about knowing Jesus, about sharing in the life of Jesus, up to and including his suffering, even being conformed to his death. That's what it's like to become like Jesus. And if in hearing this passage about suffering and persecution, your mind also turned to Hebrews 11, I wouldn't at all be surprised. I know immediately my mind went there. Here's what the author of Hebrews wrote. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me. In other words, I can't preach long enough to tell you all about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight." Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. And then this next phrase, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And just forgive me, but I just want to say, folks, don't you ever fall sucker to the prosperity gospel. That's not what Jesus promises you. You can know blessedness, but you won't always have prosperity. These people didn't, and they made it in the hall of fame of faith. Jesus didn't always know prosperity, and look where he is, sitting on the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. This is the gospel. This is biblical faith. So when you hear words like we just read from Hebrews 11, when you hear again that Philippians 3.10, and you begin to understand that suffering for Jesus is serious business. And if you are a Christian today, and you follow the news at all, any serious news, and even some of those which are not so dependable, but if you follow the news over the past couple of years, and especially the past couple of months, you should recognize the name of Andrew Brunson. We got a picture of him. We're going to throw it up. If you're not familiar with his name or his picture, maybe you'll remember the story. I think some of you go, oh, that guy, that's who you're talking about. This is the story since October 2016, Pastor Brunson, who's a missionary, has been held by Turkey as a political hostage. Ah, that guy. Yeah, that guy. In the news every week, practically. He's been accused. He's a missionary there, but he was accused by 
the government of having links with an organization that was involved in the failed coup attempt back in 2016, and that he has some friends who were in the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party. But most astute political observers contend that Turkey's President Erdogan is keeping Brunson imprisoned, keeping him hostage for diplomatic leverage. There are some things he wants from the United States, and he doesn't want to release Brunson until he gets them. Earlier this summer, back in July, after optimistic reports and some negotiations had taken place, there had been word that Brunson might be released at the end of his third hearing. That's how long this has gone. He's now in his third set of hearings. He's been in prison for about two years. And so there in Turkey, the the court called him back in again, put him back on trial. And here's what happened. The judge (laughs) sent this North Carolina pastor and missionary back to prison for another three months. So that'll come up again in October. Fortunately, later, again, if you're following the news, he was moved to house arrest. But in a few weeks, he'll be in front of the court for his fourth hearing. And he will have spent at that time more than two years in a Turkish prison and even more in restriction and house arrest. And I will say the reports are that although the trial has not gone particularly well for Pastor Brunson, at this last hearing, he once again had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. So in the courtroom, here's what he did. He forgave those who had falsely testified against him. And here's what he said, my faith teaches me to forgive. So I forgive those who have testified against me. There was another American pastor who was present at the trial. He said, as usual, there was a lot of spurious false testimony against Andrew, but his testimony was absolutely powerful. He presented the gospel with confidence and defended himself with boldness. And in a Facebook post, his wife, Noreen, posted this. She said, the Lord was absolutely glorified. Andrew explained why he was here, and he gave the gospel. And he publicly forgave all those who have come forward against him, forgiving as he has been forgiven. She continued, he said, it is a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. Blessed am I as I suffer for him. Blessed am I as I am slandered. Blessed am I as I am being lied about. Blessed am I as I am imprisoned. Blessed am I as I share his suffering. And his wife says, I'm incredibly proud of him, as I'm quite sure, although he knows he's blessed, he doesn't feel blessed at this point. Now, brothers and sisters, what Pastor Brunson is showing is what we call courage. God-honoring Christian courage. And I want to share with you this definition. Courage stems from the conviction that there's something worth living for 
and even some things worth dying for. As Jesus spoke his words about persecution as part of the Beatitudes, remember this is part of his Sermon on the Mount. There are thousands of people who have gathered on this hillside because regardless of the reason that brought them there that day, generally speaking, they were there because their world as they saw it, their world as they understood it was a mess. They needed God's intervention. They needed his salvation. They needed to hear a word from God. Can I get a witness? Amen. Does that sound familiar? Your world's a mess. Yeah, I feel like I need a, world, a word from God. Our world needs God's intervention. And to those people... What Jesus said 2,000 years ago, I say to you today with just as much conviction, I'm going to paraphrase it and say it this way, if you're going to follow God in this world, it's not going to be easy. If you're going to follow God in this world, prepare yourself, get the character you need as you follow God, as you interact with him, have your life shaped by him, because it's not going to be easy. To be God's people in this world requires certain convictions that lead to developing a certain character, which leads to developing a certain quality of life. And then, as a result of having that kind of life, you are going to find yourself blessed but persecuted. And it's going to take courage. Courage is required for the Christian life. It's required of all of us who would live it. Because here's the funny thing. You might read the Beatitudes, that whole passage that we read this morning. You might look back to the old King James, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed. And you think, man, the world is going to love those kinds of people. But in truth, they will hate you because the values of Jesus, the values of the Beatitudes run counter to the values of this world in which we live. So here's what we need to understand about the Beatitudes. If you've memorized them, you've known them for years, you've gotten used to just kind of ignoring them because you've heard them so many times. Here's the thing. The real thing behind the Beatitudes is not the question, do you want to live a happy and blessed life? I've heard so many sermons on this passage, and that's the question. Would you like a happy and blessed life? Would you like a happy and would you like a, anybody here stupid enough not to want a happy and blessed life? Because if you are, the other, that's other issues that we got to handle outside of here. We all, we all want that, duh, as they say. Everybody wants that. The real question of the Beatitudes is this, and it's revealed here in these final verses of the Beatitudes. And here it is Are you ready to let go of the values that the world promotes and embrace the values of Jesus? That's the question, because it's the values of Jesus that talk about being merciful and meek 
and all the other things that we've studied in the Beatitudes. That's the values of Jesus. They run contrary to the values of this world. So today, what I want us to do, if you've got your Bible open to that passage, I want us to walk back through these three verses today, the last three, Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12, the very end of the Beatitudes. Excuse me while I'm flipping to it right here. I want to have it open in front of me. I think it's good to have it open in front of you. And I am going to do this. Normally, we use any variety of translations. Most often, the New Revised Standard, which is in the Pew Bibles, often the New International Version. Those of you who follow my, my, my preaching know I, I dive into the NASB a lot, but I'm going to do a different version today. I'm going to use the Amplified Version for this part of the walkthrough. And I want to explain that to those of you who may not have ever heard of the Amplified Bible. It doesn't mean get on a microphone and turn up the amp. That's not what it means. What it means is most translations are about trying to find the best word. If I use the word vermelho in Portuguese, then the best word for that in English is the word red. Okay, so most of the time when you're translating, it's one word. If it's a verb, sometimes it's two words. You say echo in Greek, right? I have. That, that's, that's just a, a two word. That's true in a lot of like Spanish. Portuguese, other Latin-based languages, when you say the verb, you don't have to put the person there. The verb form tells you, I am, or you run, or he is. That's how it is. Well, when you put in deep ideas and profound concepts like the spiritual life and like the deep, rich teaching of Jesus, let me just say, it's very hard to find one word that communicates all the truth. The Greek language of that era, Koine Greek in particular, was very rich language. You had to study a lot to know what the word means. So when they did the Amplified Bible, here's what they said. And those of you who are bilingual, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are not, this is kind of the idea. It's not just one word. So in the Amplified Bible, when you said run, they might put the word run, scatter, uh, skedaddled, they'll put several words there to try to give it the rich version so that by the time you read all of them, you have some idea of what's being conveyed in the original language. Because the Word of God is so profound and the capacity of first century Koine Greek so expansive to communicate complex thoughts, they said we need more than one word. So that's why we're using the Amplified Version's classic edition today, Matthew 5, 10 to 11. Here's what it says. Blessed and happy and enviably fortunate and spiritually prosperous. Now, they get to this idea that the blessed means spiritually prosperous, and they need to tell you that it's not talking about material prosperity. So here's what they say. In the state in which the born-again child of God enjoys and finds satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of his outward conditions. All of that's from the very beginning. Blessed are you, or you're blessed when, that's what that whole phrase is about. 
blessed and happy and enviably fortunate and spiritually prosperous are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for being and doing right. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy to be envied and spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of your outward conditions, you see. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Be glad and supremely joyful. For your reward in heaven is great, it is strong and intense. For in this same way, people persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow, that's a lot to take in. All that prosperity and blessing and being fortunate, even in persecution. Now, this is what we call one of the great contradictions of the Christian life as most of us live it. Because when you say to people, would you like for God to bless you? Would you like to just fill your life today with the blessings of God? What do people say? Sure. Yes. Bring it on. Okay. Here, have a big dose of persecution. It's the blessing nobody wants is what we call it. The great contradiction, the blessing of God that nobody really wants. It's the cup that we would rather not drink from, right? Jesus said, let this cup pass from my lips if it be your will, but not my will, but thine be done. The cup of persecution and suffering. It's interesting because this, this beatitude is, is really striking. Now, notice it for several reasons. It was the last of the beatitudes. And you say, well, is that important? Yes, because when you see Jesus teach, does he know how to close something? Sure, he does. He knows how to close an illustration. He knows how to close a lesson. He's coming on strong. So when he puts it last, he, he, it's a strong closing. That's how Jesus is looking at it. Also, this is the longest of all those others that you would go back and read. This is all one beatitude, 10, 11, and 12. It's all, takes three verses just to get this one in. So it's the longest one. It's the only one with a command in it. It's the one that says, be glad and supremely joyful. The others don't have a command form. They just describe, blessed are you when. But this is a command for. It's also interesting that Jesus, inside those three verses, repeats himself, right? Don't think it's because Jesus forgot what he said, folks. He gets to the last one, and he says it twice, two different kind of ways. He's emphasizing it. And then, if you've looked very carefully at the passage, no matter what translation you've got, it's easy to note something else. In all those other ones, he says, Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. This one you miss in some of the, the recent translations which changed to the word you. That's not what it says. It says blessed are those. When you get to this one, it changes to the second person and it says blessed are you. 
Jesus moves from the general to the very specific. And when he gets to the end and talks about suffering and persecution, he makes a grammatical shift in the Greek language to saying, not just those, you, you. This is for you. I'm speaking directly to you, my listener, my reader. This, this is... This is profound, and I think it, it highlights the importance of this beatitude. Now, there are a lot of ideas. Keep that passage in front of you because I want us to walk through it a little bit, and there are a lot of ideas to discuss from this passage that come right out of the passage. It was Sinclair Ferguson. This, is, this, this passage has been studied a lot. Sinclair Ferguson, he said this. I, I, I love this. He says, isn't this the reverse of what we would expect? Men and women who are poor in spirit, men and women who mourn for their sin, who live lives of gracious meekness, people who long for God's righteousness, people who show mercy to others, people who are pure in heart and seek peace between God and man, would such people not be welcomed with open arms. After all, these are the very men and women the world needs. The world in which we live assumes, the world in which we live thinks that it will welcome Christians with open arms until for the first time it meets the genuine article. Because until then, it is ignorant of its real response to the gospel. The world assumes that it is well disposed to Jesus Christ and to God. And what do we know from the Bible? The world is at enmity with God. The world is living in opposition to God. At least it better be. (laughs) Because the church better stand out as those who are living for God. And sometimes we in the church do a lousy job of that. It frustrates us. It's easier to spot in other people than it is to spot in ourselves. But it was the old Scottish preacher, George McClellan. You got to love these guys. He said this, the great criticism of the church today is that no one wants to persecute it because there's nothing very much to persecute it for. Ow. You understand, he's saying one of the reasons we don't serve for persecution is that we're constantly giving in to the world. The world says, you must be like this, and instead of saying, no, I have a higher allegiance, we give in and we go along. And we think, that's a good thing. The world should like us. I think sometimes we as Christians get stuck on Luke 2.52. You remember that passage? And Jesus, let me get you started, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And we think, oh, pastor, that's who I want to be. I want to I grow in wisdom and stature and, and, and find favor with God and man. Yeah, can I just point out something to you? Luke 2.52, go back and read it. It's before Jesus does one thing of public ministry. The minute he steps out and begins ministering in God's plan for him, he finds opposition. 
The world likes a Christian who's polite and nice, you know, all those kinds of things. But what McLeod is saying, I think what Jesus is saying, see, we, we, we like to think the world will receive us if we just do good. But Jesus, after Luke 2.52, he did nothing but good. And look where he ended up. You see, the Jesus that we know from the Scriptures, the minute he began his public ministry, the criticism began immediately. You remember? The way the other Gospels tell it. Jesus in his first message practically, and what do the people say? Who, who's that kid think he is? Isn't that the carpenter's son? What's he doing mouthing off? Who told him to do anything other than just to read the Scripture and sit down and shut up? But when he said, this is fulfilled today and you're hearing, took a little jab, started his public ministry, reminded folks, this is, God is at work. Oh, that did not go over well. So here's what the scriptures are telling us. When we embrace the life of the Beatitudes, when we enjoy the life that the Beatitudes invite us to live, when we participate in the life that the Beatitudes instruct us to live, when the Beatitudes make up our character so that we live not as citizens of this world, but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then we need to understand that as followers of Christ, we will be persecuted for walking that radical, narrow way that leads to life instead of the broad way that leads to destruction that Jesus talked about in Matthew 7. So what Jesus is telling us is essentially this. If you're going to be a follower of mine, you're going to need to have a brave heart. You're going to need some courage because persecution comes to those who embrace righteousness. And as the word righteousness implies, it means there is a right way to live, and true righteousness is created and determined by God alone, who is himself righteous. So see, here's the deal. Basically, if I try to put it more simply, righteousness is what happens. Righteousness is what results when God is allowed to take his rightful place as the one in charge. When God's in charge of this world, when God is in charge of your life and mine as we submit ourselves to him, that's where righteousness happens. The old country preacher that I grew up hearing some on the radio, Vance Havner, he said, one of our biggest problems today is that most church people have never really made up their minds to follow Jesus. They're more like Mr. Looking Both Ways in Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that one, I recommend it. Or they're like Lot's wife looking back towards Sodom. Or they're like the man in the Civil War who wore a blue coat and gray pants and got shot at from both sides. They're like a donkey stuck between two bales of hay, unable to choose from which he will eat. They're like the son in our Lord's parable, S-O-N, the son in our Lord's parable who said, I will go, sir, but then went not, the scripture says to us. 
as in the parable of the sower, they receive the word with joy, but they have no root nor depth and soon fall away. They never really make up their minds, and they are like the man who was asked, you have trouble making decisions? And he replied, well, yes, and no. <laughs> you see, at, at first glance, it may seem odd that peacemakers who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who meek, that these peacemakers, as David preached on so wonderfully last week, would then turn around and be the persecuted. But what we have to remember, lest we be discouraged when conflict comes, is that we, as the people of God, we have been transferred. We are immigrants. We have migrated from the kingdom of darkness, as First Peter says, into His marvelous light. You move from one to the other. Again, I love the old preachers, Alexander McLaren. Now, he's the Scotsman. He, he was one of the first great Baptist preachers back in the 1800s. Here's what he said. A true Christian ought to be a standing rebuke to the world, an incarnate conscience. In other words, Christ in you. He's incarnated in you. You are him. And, and that's a way of saying you are called to be salt. Remember, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. We're called to be light. You are the light of the world. We're migrating. We're immigrating. We're changing. And that is the difference between being a member of God's family, a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, as the Bible puts it, and not. You know, maybe you're here today as a Christian, because at some point in your past, you began to look at your life, you began to think about the poor decisions you had made or the consequences of years of wrong patterns of living or maybe just as a consequence of an emptiness and you turn to God. And so many words like that publican the Bible talks about, you said to God in so many words, have mercy on me, O God. I'm a sinner. The truth is, there are many people in this world who do not make that decision. They decide that this kingdom life is not for them. Some dip in a toe, but never jump in the spiritual lake. And it's painful for those of us who have friends, family, neighbors, and sometimes they're sweet people. They accept the path that we've chosen for us. They say, oh, that's good for you. But they themselves have chosen a different path. And, and you know it's a path that leads to destruction. It's painful. McLaren went on to say, he said, a righteous life will not make a person popular. See, we, we think that you're a good Christian man. People, no, that does not make you popular. He says, you're your character, your integrity may make you trusted. It may earn you grudging respect, but that's not the standard of popularity in the world. And he goes on to say, as, as for opinions, I love this, earnest religious opinions of any sort are distasteful. 
not the profession of them, but the reality of them, especially those which seem in any way new or strange. It makes the average human being, the average man, angrily intolerant of an earnest Christian or Christianity which takes its creed seriously and insists on measuring life by the gospel. Hey, you do that, you're going to irk the heck out of people. That's what Jesus is saying. Sometimes it's because of human laziness. They don't really want to hear the challenge of the gospel. Sometimes it's self-complacency. I'm fine the way I am. Sometimes it's a inborn conservatism and an unwillingness to change, which you have to say in the face of these enthusiastic Christians, it's very inconvenient, right? They want to turn the world upside down by following Jesus. And that's what makes the cultural captivity of the church, any cultural captivity of the church, so dangerous. And that's what makes this human thinking that so many people out there have somehow that Jesus was a conservative. That's hilarious. And please understand, I'm not talking about politically right and left. I'm talking about this idea that Jesus was, a, he liked things the way they were. What Bible are you reading? As an orientation to life, as an orientation to Christian living in particular, Jesus was a radical. Jesus was viewed as anything but conservative. Oh, he wants to destroy this. He wants us. And Jesus himself said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Understanding that this is a divisive thing for humanity. He and his disciples turned the world upside down. He came to save, not to conserve. And this persecution that Jesus warns about can come in a couple of different ways. It can come in these uh, verbal, physical attacks, chasing people and persecuting them, as we know Paul did as when he was Saul. Or it might be a personal verbal attack in the form of slander and lies or insults and insinuations and hatred and ostracism. And shall we tell the truth that while on the basis of warnings like this from Jesus, a Christ follower might naturally expect persecution from this, from this world. He says, you live like this for righteousness sake, you're going to be persecuted. You are now light and they are darkness. It's, it's not unusual to think that persecution will come. What is painfully true is that many believers are caught off guard when they are persecuted by others in the church. Oh, pastor, did you have to bring that up? Pastor, we're trying to recruit new members. Pastor, do we need to talk about our shortcomings? Especially, pastor, when if you, if you be fair, they're not just our shortcomings. They're in every church and they're in every gathering. Friends, that is exactly why we must be honest about this. And if it just so happens that there's someone in the room today and this is your first time, there are two things I want to say to you. Number one is this, welcome, 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 welcome. We could not be happier that you are here. The second is this, be forewarned. We are not perfect people. You got to know that. If you're going to survive around here, you better know that. Jesus says, this is kind of how it is. Now the persecution comes 
We expect it from the world, but folks, we, we, need, we need to clean up our act on this other side. No, uh, any church on earth is not a perfect church filled with perfect people. That's true. As a matter of fact, if we take the Bible seriously, Matthew 7, I quoted from a moment ago, we have to admit the likelihood that not everyone in any church is a genuine believer. Sometimes there are folks present who are just attenders or they're dabbling around the edges of church, but, but they've never had that real radical experience of coming to know Christ and saying, oh, to know him, the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings, that's for me. As a matter of fact, they're kind of taken aback when they meet those kind of crazy radical Christians who talk like that. And although it can be very subtle amongst religious folk, it is still very painful. Oh, well, so-and-so, so-and-so. Interesting, wasn't it? The most consistent, persistent persecutors of the Lord Jesus Christ were the religious folk. So they had lots of scriptural knowledge, but they did not know the one who himself is the truth, the way, the truth, and love. So this is important for us to take so, so seriously because we may say, well, times have changed. Yes, but have people's hearts changed, right? The heart of man is desperately wicked, the Bible warns us. So why are we surprised that some attacks will rise from those who are within a church? Even, you say, well, not just, the, not just between the, the early Christians, and these, but in the early church in Jerusalem, in the early churches it spread, all this yak, yak, yak attacking of each other. It was the religious folks. And you go all the way back to when Jesus came, right? John 1, what does it say? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In other words, they would not have him as their Lord and King. They weren't having any of that. And that's the call, to have Jesus as Lord and King. And some choose not to walk that way. The great, great pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is what he said. This is the teaching of the Bible. It has been substantiated by the history of the church that the persecution does not always come from the outside, but sometimes from within. There are ideas of Christianity far removed from the New Testament, which are held by many people and which cause them to persecute those who are trying in sincerity and truth to follow the Lord Jesus along the narrow way. You may well find it in your own personal experience. This is Lloyd Jones speaking. He says, I have often been told by converts that they get much more opposition from supposedly Christian people than they do from the man of the world outside, who at times is glad to see them changed and wants to know something about what caused it. But formal, stuffy Christianity is often the greatest enemy of the pure faith. He wrote that in the study on the Sermon on the Mount, oh, a hundred years ago, something like that, 75, 80 years ago. Now, brothers and sisters here, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm not I'm not being judgmental. I'm not encouraging you to become judgmental. Jesus says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So here's what we want to, when he says, when you are persecuted for my sake. So for all of us who feel like somebody's, you know, not happy with us, one of the things we have to ask ourselves is this, how's my heart? 
How are my motives? Do a self-inventory. How about my methods? How, how am I making sure that it's the righteousness of God that I'm pursuing? Am I trying to walk rightly with God and with others? Am I in the Word? Am I in conversation? Am I seeking Him? Am I walking in community? Am I walking in accountability? This is what it's about. If so, then I'm persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that refers ultimately to God's righteousness, which shines forth through his children. And so that's what the Bible means when it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what it means when it talks about Cain killing Abel because Abel offered up a righteous sacrifice. The envy came after him. David was falsely accused and chased after by King Saul. David was criticized by those when he worshiped God a little too enthusiastically. Daniel was thrown in jail for praying to his Lord while others conformed to their culture and that culture's gods. And the list goes on and on. And what Jesus is saying is, if it can happen to them, it can happen to you. Not for your opinions, not for your preferences, but suffering for the ordinary, or not even suffering for the ordinary troubles of life, but suffering for the sake of righteousness. And that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right, who opposed the Nazi regime when he could have sought safety. Uh, he had the chance to leave Germany and come to America. He didn't take it. He lost his life in a Nazi prison. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke courageously against racism and prejudice, and he was assassinated. A group of Christians from South Korea supported the poor with health care, free health care in Afghanistan, and the pastor and another brother from the church were killed. Women in the group were raped. This is, this is in our generation, folks. This is in the past 10 years. There are people today doing the mission of God around this world, and their lives are at risk. They're being persecuted. We need to be careful. You don't need to feel bad that you're not being persecuted like those folks, because here's the deal that I want to leave you with today. Understand that this beatitude is not asking you to go out and seek to be persecuted. Why does it say you are persecuted? For the sake of righteousness. This beatitude is Jesus's plea to his people. Live righteous lives. Be right with God and with one another. It'll take courage, but that's his invitation. Persecuted for his sake. Let's pray together. Brothers and sisters, with your heads bowed, I would simply say when we give ourselves fully to God, we find that doesn't leave anything else for people to take away that we have to be scared of, you know? Our pride, our dignity, our reputations rest in his hands. And in return, he wants to give you and me the kingdom of heaven. So be courageous, be glad and supremely joyful that he's inviting you to live this life. Heavenly Father, I simply ask that you take the teaching of your word, you take the power of your scriptures, which you have promised will not return void. Speak. Speak through the Holy Spirit to us, not just in this moment, but throughout this week, that we might live wholly devoted to you. And we pray that you would lead us as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.